Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes The Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Multi-award-winning Damien Callanan is an actor, comedian and writer. A fabulous storyteller, this conversation covers topics as diverse as his infertility, love of Ireland, tragic death and relationship breakdowns, all with his characteristic warmth, thoughtfulness and humour. So, Damien, welcome to Five of My Life and more importantly, welcome to the Elite Sixer Club. That's the uh, group of people that we have on the show because other guests have asked that they are on the show and you were nominated by Tony Wilson. Would you mind telling us about that relationship? Tony and I are, I guess, old friends now, but, you know, those people that kind of are in your periphery and then eventually your, your, your world start to merge and um, I guess our combined love of culture and sport drew us together. And I, I remember doing a gig for him with um, with his father. His father, the great Ray Wilson, a Hawthorne Premiership player. Tony himself uh, was on the fringes of Hawthorne greatness until his career was uh, thwarted by mediocrity and, uh, and dodgy knees. But I was doing a gig for the Uni Blacks Football Club, um, of which he excelled for many years and i think that was the night that we kind of we bonded and we've stayed stayed sort of friends ever since so often kind of confiding in each other in we both we both dwell in the kind of periphery of fame and uh <laughs> that's uh, that's a nice place to be but nothing wrong with the b-list mate Nothing wrong Absolutely. with the billet. <laughs> oh, look, you know, even low, lowercase b, it's fine. <laughs> Listen, well, I am so glad that you are mates and he recommended you because uh, on this episode, all your choices, never heard of them and was a joy going on this voyage of discovery, watching, reading and listening and, and Google mapping your choices. It's, ju- it's just been a, a sensation. So thank you. I feel I feel like a wiser man. My pleasure. And, and on five of my... Th- we start with the film. You're not going to believe me, but I had never seen or even heard of The Club, right. the 1980 film adaptation of David Williamson's 1977 play. Uh, but I adored it. Please tell us why you chose that on Five of My Life. Well, interestingly, I chose it not so much for the film, but the play. Right. Um, uh, as a kid, my, my father um, was a school headmaster and teacher, but also a an amateur actor, and um, there's a lot of my DNA in his. And in the early days, we'd, um, you know, as, as a kid, we used to get taken to the theatre a lot. And one of my first ever stage memories or theatrical memories was going to see the club with the Melbourne Theatre Company, and it just it blew my mind. I think there was an element of seeing sport and culture for the first time played together, and little did I know that that would become very much my remit as a performer and a writer down the track. 
Um, I also uh, I grew up in a half Collingwood, half Essendon football club family for the for the non Australians. They're two powerhouse AFL teams, and uh, my father was Essendon, my mum was Collingwood, but she came from Collingwood royalty. Her cousin, who was like a brother to a Fonts kind, was a the kind of the last of those gentlemen coaches. Very much not depicted in the club. The the club has almost like evil, despotic former clubmen who um, just cherish their own photo on the club room walls above everyone else's. And so I was kind of drawn to it for all of those reasons. And uh, but I did watch it again last night. It has not dated well. Oh my goodness! This this domestic violence. Oh my word! Domestic violence oh. jokes and. So I found it was a bit of a tough watch, you know, given how, <laughs> how revered. I, I know Barrack for Collingwood till I was about eight. And I remember it was around that time I'd moved to Essendon when I watched the club as the first time. And, and seeing like, like seeing the inner sanctum of the club rooms, it was all – I just was fascinated and loved it as a kid and the naughty jokes. But now I guess, uh, you know, um, it's been quite telling some of these choices that I've revisited after sending to you um, – I haven't completely reassessed, but it's kind of given me a bit of a journey of where of where the world has come to and where I've come to as far as yeah, certainly humour and what's what's fair game. I tell you that there's some brilliant lines in it. Williamson, there's one where Jack Thompson he shouts at whoever it is, one of the boy. What gives you the right to pass judgment on me, you fat turd? Get back to the pie factory. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot that aren't repeatable, but that that's one that is one. I think the thing that's always stayed with me, and it did in the play as well, is the is the scene where, and another reason for choosing it too is that John Howard, the great Australian actor, plays the young Jeff Howard, the the, the prodigy from Tasmania, who's going to save the club. But the the scene that still, and I still think it plays out really well, is him bluffing and making up a story to the club club stalwart about. You know, being in a kind of a, a relationship, incestuous with his, relationship with his, with his legless, legless sister. sister. <laughs> the moment where he goes to pick her up and can't can't lift her because there's no legs there. That that oh. stayed in my and I still laughed just as hard at that when I watched it last night. I, I tell you that there's something again strange for me because I'm a pom and and I've only had got twenty years of back sort of cultural heritage here. That there's stuff that I'm catching up on. So I mean, don't tell John Howard this. Seeing him. In the club, he was a beautiful man. He's stunning, wasn't he? And he's Astonishing. quite superb in it too. He's, you know, he's obviously looks like an Adonis, but he um, there's a kind of level of naivety and alongside um, intellectual superiority that he plays, which is very hard to do when you're that age to put put all that into the, onto the canvas within a football club. He looks completely out of sorts in that environment. I have to ask you: Have you have you done Ted Lasso or not? No, I haven't. Ah, that's in your wheelhouse, mate. If you know comedy yeah. and sport, I mean that's right up your street. I would imagine. So yes, I'm, a recommendation. It's on for you. my list. Yeah, wonderful. Listen, we're going to move from the eighties to the nineties, and oh my word! I mean, it just keeps on getting better and better. You, you chose Eucalyptus by Murray Bale, the Miles Franklin Award winner. What an astonishing book! Could you uh, uh, describe it to us and tell us why you chose it on Five of My Life? Yes. Yeah, so Eucalyptus is, um, I guess, a Australian fable of sorts. The, the, but the basic storyline is a gentleman takes possession of a property, and that, that classic outsider who's come into come into an environment has got the best land in the district, but he's not from there, and he sets about um, planting 
a eucalyptus of every species. Uh, he also inherits his daughter, Latterly, who comes to live there. She is, you know, becomes quickly renowned as the, the most beautiful woman. This is where the book starts to stretch, stretch the bounds into kind of magic realism that, you know, her beauty is renowned, you know, across the oceans from Chile to, you know, to Norway. And the suitors start coming for her. Uh, and ultimately, the, in the storyline, um, the father, protective father, decides that whoever has her hand has to name every tree on his property, every eucalypt. So that's that's the setup for it. But it's um, it's full of incredibly beautiful descriptions of both Australian nature and Australian manhood. Uh, I'm, I'm rereading it at the moment, and I, I'm enjoying it just as much. But again, it's kind of shifted a little bit for me. It, in the same way, the club completely lacks any female characters. The principal female character in this, we never hear her stories. It's very, it's very male oriented. Uh, I haven't got to the end of it yet, so I don't know whether that uh, <laughs> redeems itself in the storyline. But it, but lit, um, on a literary sense, it still holds up. It's still one of my favourite books. So the the writing is sumptuous. There's a couple of quotes I've got here. I was moved to write them down. Yeah, yeah. So, so one is the randomness of true harmony demonstrated so casually in nature. Yeah, I think, yeah, okay. And then another one, which is beautiful. He's describing a nest in a tree, and he goes, "They're constructions of aerial sticks, like the shadowy congestions in a sieve." That that is just sensational. I, I mean, that's what a nest does look like, but I wouldn't have thought of connecting those two things or I mean, it's just a beautiful impactful book that stayed with me but it makes me want to ask you on five of my life getting intimate um it's obviously about courting and romance yeah uh, um tell me about that in your own life it was a book that i discovered can't remember the timeline but my partner at the time joe discovered at the same time we both had a we were developing kind of a great love for australian fauna and flora and it was kind of it was almost like we were courting but also courting the beauty of our country together as we traveled and so it, it, the book very much reminds me of that time and joe and i are no longer together but the, yeah the, there's always that beautiful treasured part of a relationship while we were kind of estranged for a period of time, we're, we're kind of friends of sorts now, and that that connection is important to me. I'm happily married to uh, to Zilla now, and you know we've had a you know those honeymoon periods that you can't get. This surely this will end. We've just had a <laughs> it it hasn't. In fact, the pandemic being driven together in small quarters for long periods of time when we're both used to we're both working the arts and travel out and have periods apart, but we. Uh, just profoundly lucky to have each other and the love kind of keeps compounding if you like the level of companionship and devotion is has remained intact and strengthened mate that's that's lovely to hear you talk like that good on you both um we're moving now to your third choice and and you've done it again you've mentioned something i've i've never heard of one of the most wonderfully named bands my friend the chocolate cake i've got a plan so, my friend the chocolate cake, David Bridie, is the singer and principal songwriter. He previously was in a band called Not Drowning Waving, who were equally internationally influential with their adoption of Pacifica and uh, Melanesian and Polynesian music in, into his work. They were always one of my favourite bands, and I kind of followed Not Drowning Waving into My Friend the Chocolate Cake. 
in a rare situation, and it felt, feels like stalking, but we worked together or we worked side by side at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, in uh-huh. the late 90s, and that's when we first met. And then at Edinburgh Fringe 10 years later, they happened to be there at the same year. So it felt like a really slow courting of a friendship. Over that particular festival, and it was just when Zilla and I got together, we started spending quite a lot of time together and I had a big lunch with them. <laughs> I had to do that thing of like, I have to admit this, like how big my fandom is. Like I've been playing it really casually. And uh, he and Helen Mountford, the other leader of the band, I just blurted out. I just went, you're my favourite band ever. <laughs> <laughs> so I just had to say it. It feels like I've been just hanging around you to say that. But um, <laughs> so, uh, and yeah, so David and I have remained really close friends and, and I've got a plan. I think it came to me at a time of life where I was, I had previously been married before Joe and in a relationship that uh, probably should never have happened. But how many times have you been married, mate? 42. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, I married, yeah, I, mar- I married young. And the end of that relationship also was me finding out that I was infertile. Right. Uh, and so there was quite a lot going on in my life. And I kind of was moving past that phase of my life. And I can remember being on a country road up through the Macedon Ranges and playing I've Got a Plan uh, and just kind of felt like everything is straight ahead from here. Wow, God, there's so many things that I want to probe. Yeah, I know. What? Which one? Which scab do you pick? I'm, I'm going to stay with the song, but then I'm going to go elsewhere. But is there a beautiful line in the second verse, which is, I've got a plan not to try to be something I'm not. Yeah. Is, yeah. is in your life, were, were there times when, when you felt, you know, those people who mum and dad forces them to be a doctor and they want to be, a you know, a, uh, an actor rather than yeah. doctor? Were there times in your life where you've felt, bloody hell, I'm doing something and I'm living other people's lives rather than mine? Or oh, Not other people's lives, just the, the choices I'd made for myself, I suppose. Like career, career-wise, at, at that time that I just described was when I was moving into becoming a full-time performer. And I think I just, you know, I went to an, an all-male Christian brother school where there, there was no arts at all. We did, In year 10, I, do, I put down to do drama and all Christian brother just came in one day, just handed us to play arsenic on old lace and said, learn that. Right. Uh, we did one reading kind of live rehearsal of Act 1 at the Year 10 Assembly, and it was so poorly put together that I just had to keep improvising to keep it going. And it's when I, for the first time, kind of had that number of people laugh at my improvisation. It was a bit of a key-turning right. moment. But yeah, I had kind of like 10 years of kind of drifting and I, I loved teaching. The more I did it, the more I loved it. Became a drama teacher. But I was slowly kind of like, like I was on the road, but I didn't know what the road was. And yeah, they were, they were all my own choices. There was no one saying, apart from shithouse career te- teachers going, <laughs> nah, don't do drama, do teaching. You can do a bit of acting on the side, but you know. But to go to the the previous thing you mentioned, if you're if you're told that you you aren't going to naturally sire kids, whatever the right expression is, um, yeah, that that that's that's a mildly big deal. I mean, how 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 do you deal with that? Yeah, well, it, the the revelation came in the midst of you know, obviously in a relationship we'd we'd started to to try to have kids, and and I in an emotional state that was not known to anyone else was like, I don't really want to do this because I'm not happy. So this this is not with Zilla. This is no, with no. This is with Joe. my first wife, Kath. Yeah. and um, it's not her fault that I hadn't communicated that. I was just kind of internally processing, but she didn't cope well with the news at all, and and things kind of blew up. And that was when I went, oh look, you know, I'm I'm already not happy 
to have this kind of reaction to it was kind of the seed for me to start to move yeah. on. It was, it's a lot more complicated than that, and it's not fair to both parties to just tell my side. But so yeah, in the process, the the processing of um, my infertility was put to the side. And in fact, I didn't even really know what was wrong with me. Ten years later, I actually did a show called Spaznuts, which is what Joe, my partner, called me when she found out I was infertile, <laughs> which. It summed her up, just great, very dry. And that show is really about me um, re-entering into that space and working out what was wrong with me. And and by that stage, I was comfortable and content with, you know, that not being, fatherhood not being part of my life. Um, It is a profound thing to have taken away from me if you desperately want Hmm. um, want to. So, yeah, it was a – so in the end, I kind of put a full stop on that show. And as I do with most shows, they, they run a race particularly stuff that's biographical like that, you tell a story to a certain part of your life and if you're still telling that same show four years later, you've evolved. So you kind of need to cut cut it off and move on, not be defined by it. It's incredibly impressive when you say moving on to a different show. Is You seem to be constantly sort of in demand and employed, which, in, which if you aren't a Tom Cruise or whatever, you go that there are lots of people who it's – an enormous struggle where you seem to always come up with content. You're publishing a children's book. You've got an amazing film. You, you do comedy. You, you you seem to always be dynamically engaged. You're just a very, very hard worker, supremely <laughs> talented. What, what What's your secret, mate? Oh, look, I, th- I think it's uh, certainly in Australia, the scene is small, you know, so the, right. the pool of jobs, therefore, is shallow. Him again. <laughs> yeah. I learned from an early age, the time I first kind of went full time, that the more work that I developed myself, the more chance I had of working. Um, and it just happens I have that skill set and have developed that skill set. And, you know, particularly, kind of particularly renowned for writing one-man shows just because they're so much easier to organise rehearsal schedules and, and touring schedules. I think that, you know, work begets, begets work. Um and and each and each time I kind of slightly shift direction. Like the merger film came about because, you know, working backwards, I'd written a play called Sportsman's Night about the Bodgy Creek Football Club, um, on a diff- different theme. It was about violence in club culture. It was very successful. Then I was approached by Regional Arts Victoria to write a play about racism, and they said you've already got the characters. So I wrote the merger play. People started saying to me afterwards, it feels like a film, it looks like a film, it smells like a film. Um, and so I went, all right, well, I'll explore that avenue. I was lucky enough to get a couple of people to help me. And so I keep just like putting my foot indoors and opening them and seeing where they lead. Um, but, yeah, to be honest, Nigel, it's just I just keep creating my own work. And I am getting a little bit more in the last few years since the merger, a lot more offers to play roles in tv and film I'm, I'm enjoying that now having a bit more the film has given me a little bit more um leverage and, I, and i'm glad that you that you uh, you know have your attitude because you present all this lovely stuff into the world i mean it's i mean i've been talking to the guys here who's setting up this this recording and they're going oh him we love him we love the bodgy creek stuff and so oh, great. yeah i think it's also you end up doing what you love doing if you're creating your own work I'm making active choices about the things that I like to do and want to do. So if you're not happy doing that, then there's something wrong with you.
your fourth choice on Five My Life. I mean, God, I, I, I had such a good time researching you and your choices. This <laughs> led me to my mate Liam's passport because the poem that we're going to come on and discuss in a second is yeah. actually in the Irish passport. I don't know if you knew that. It's literally printed in Irish people's passports. But you've chosen oh, as right? your place. Yeah, you've chosen the, the Isle of Innisfree, which is a small little island in Loch Gill, County Sligo Island, as your place. Tell us about that. A famous poem by William Butler Yeats. Uh, and the, the story for me goes back to my father he used to read to me um, and my dad was, as I said, an amateur actor and headmaster, but an English literature teacher and had a great and profound love words and also used to read to me in accent. So anyway, this poem in particular by, by Yeats, I'm one of those um, you know, Celtic Australians who wears my heritage on my sleeve. I'm a, I'm a Eureka Stockade descendant. My great-grandfather and his three brothers all fought and their, um, their sister was very much involved in the story as well. So I think that all of those things come together to this this poem having a place for me. Our dad passed away a few years ago and in his lady, last couple of years, I used to read these same poems back to him. And there were moments where I would start reading and he would be a bit glazed over and then he would just come in on certain lines and just recite them with me without reading them. And this was one of them, the Dublin film festival and the Glasgow Film Festival asked us to tour with the film. And so I was travelling Ireland with my film and, you know, I've been to Ireland five times and I just adore the place and feel the visceral connection. And we were doing the the film screening in Sligo City and I said to my brother and sister who'd come along for the trip, I said, we've got to go to Loch Gill. Um, and I'd been there once before and couldn't find the, the Isle of Inishfree. Can I just interrupt for the people listening? It is the first line of this poem says, I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree. Yeah. And Innisfree is a real place. It is. It is a real island in Loch Gill and you are in County Sligo. So you want to go in to the actual island yes. mentioned in the poem that you read to your dad. I love it. So, And you've been before and you couldn't find it. And here you are again with your bro and your sister. Here I am. So we, we found a little road. It was like a road through someone's farm and fog lifting off the water, but overcast, not, not, a, not a colour to be seen apart from green or grey. There's a kind of a, uh, I guess, a boat ramp going into the water that kind of like just starts to bend as it enters the water and it's like it's an underground tunnel to Innisfree. So you can't get to it unless you've got a boat or whatever. And I got out of the car and I've never had such a visceral response to place in my life. The words to the poem are on a plaque next to it, and ah, and I went, I went and read the poem, and I and I could see my brother standing like in the last part of the the boat ramp into the water, and we, my brother and I, have bear a strong resemblance to my father, and it was like I was watching his spirit, and it was such a profound moment. I was I was in tears as I almost am now. The the moment, and I got to relive that story on stage in the Q and A after the film. And you know, when you you tell a story like that, that is so clearly from the heart. And these people are Sligo people, and when they heard that story, they kind of they were there was just thumping applause afterwards. That I'd been, you know, on this journey through words into this film, and my father never got to see the film, and to have. Have this audience respond to that story, my connection to the poem. It was just a, it was just one of those moments that can't be explained almost. It's just so lovely 
listening to you tell this story. I mean, and I to tell you what, from from researching it and looking at it and then listening to you now, it actually makes me want to go. And I've got no connection to it. Yeah, none. And and the story behind the poem, which I just adore, is Yates was walking down Fleet Street in a shitty, busy, noisy, polluted uh, main street, and he saw a little fountain in a shop window. Yeah, right. And you and I, slightly less literary than Yates, might think, fuck me, I wish I wasn't here. But Yates yeah. thinks, I will arise and go now to Innisfree. Yeah, <laughs> in his mind, yeah. He had a similar trajectory, I mean, not to quote my career to Yates, but he kept he kept evolving and changing and, you know, became a playwright and his mind kept evolving and he was able to use his imagination to to connect him to stuff. And I, and I certainly found that during the pandemic that my imagination allowed me to survive, I think, better, better than many. And uh, and he, he has that ability to take you there too. It's a particular gift. Like when I saw it for the first time, I saw Inish Free. I don't know what I expected to see, but it was it. And it's tiny. It's tiny, Nigel. It's like a little... And then there's no buildings on it. Nothing. Yeah, I think there's a jetty. But yeah. But we, I, I suspect we're coming on to the best of the five because your possession on Five of My Life, you have just sent to me my mum's 1946 diary. I can't wait to hear why you've chosen that. Well, interestingly, since I wrote that, it's probably a couple of months since I sent you the list, I've subsequently decided and am doing a show based on a diary. It's going to be premiering at the Melbourne Comedy Festival in late March 2022. So the story behind the diary is on on the night of Dad's funeral a few years ago, we found there was this tub of his diaries. And Dad was – Dad started diarising the day he retired. So, like, this man lived a very interesting life but started to diarise when – not a lot of shit was happening, Nigel, to be honest, and so it's quite... Had a cup of tea. <laughs> Absolutely. It, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it basically just lists things like um, <laughs> went to Hades Hot Bread Kitchen, they'd run out of rolls. Um, <laughs> Father Kears has got gout. <laughs> anyway, we found in this box on the night of Dad's funeral these other little diaries, and one of them, you know, it's like 10 centimetres by 7 centimetres and I opened it up and I realised it was in mum's hand. And I started to flick through the pages and I realised that it was not only about 1946, it was written in 1946, which is the year that they met. And I started reading aloud to my siblings. By this point of the, the night, you know, it was, it was just my, you know, the close family there. And it was incredible. We found the passage of where she met dad. No, the actual, wow. Dad. The actual passage, the, the description of seeing him, but Dad had been away at war, so he'd only just returned, and um, you could tell, you know, she had an eye from him for him straight well, away. Well, what did she say? What did she? How, how no, did she, she just, describe it? I, I remember she said um, Jack and Tom had a had a friend with them, Adrian Callanan. He'd been away with the RAF. That's why I hadn't seen him before. And then immediately, he just starts featuring in, like you know, <laughs> oh. every, every second sentence, and then. Then it describes their first kiss, not not in any romantic detail, but but also mum had all these different other guys on the boil. She was a very attractive and popular. <laughs> she had a lot of <laughs> lot of names on the dance card, Nigel. So <laughs> uh, it's almost, it almost reads like a war romance. Who you know who will she end up with? You know, I fell in love with it, and it also brought mum back to life. Um, yeah. In two thousand and eight, dad accidentally ran mum over. Oh and my word! She, he, oh, he, dear. You know, in a one in a obviously tragic situation, but 
Um, she was in a coma for five days and then we had to turn life support off. So for the next 10 years with dad, um, it was very much keeping him buoyant and, you know, keeping oh, him dear. afloat. So there was a, I, I don't think I realised until dad died, uh, the gaps in my grief for mum. Mm. Um, tragic death like that, um, the incident can often hijack the life. And, I, and one of the one of the reasons I know Tony Wilson so well, as we mentioned earlier, is I was the first speech on his Speakola website and it was my mum's eulogy, which is still mm. my proudest moment, trying to capture someone's life and and overtake the tragedy so that you just celebrated her and not what happened. And, of course, those kind of funerals also, Nigel, bring many more people to the funeral because they're, they're shocked by what happened, but they want to be there to support you. So I think there were like 30 or 40 of my comedian and actor friends in a, in a group at the back. And I used humour as well as pathos through it, which, which kind of characterised my work, but that, that particular moment. So, so yes, yeah, so this diary is like, uh, it was such a gift reading it out to my family. It was like mum came back, that version of mum and dad came back to life. It sounds like your, um, oh, your, your Adrian and Kathleen, was it? I think Adrian and Kathleen, yeah. yeah. yeah they, they just sound like they created such a lovely family and had a, such a lovely marriage. I mean, it just... There was, yeah. It is a true, it is a true beautiful romance. So cruelly separated um, after 61 years. But I think what I'm loving about it, and, it, and it's not living in the past because it's not even my past, but inhabiting this version of them, and I've been interviewing family members recently, creating kind of a family podcast so that everyone's stories are told. And I've just interviewed mum's um, siblings. I, none of dad's siblings are still alive, but Margaret's 89 and John's like 82. Um, but here, but I've been interviewing them about this period with the diary. So particularly Margaret, she was 11 or 12 at the time. So she remembers some of the, the names and the places and um, and it's been gorgeous, like, and for them too, they really enjoyed revisiting those times. And oh, it's, it, I'm, mate, and it's, it's lovely. I, I can see your face lighting up when you're talking about this. <laughs> Bloody wonderful! Um, unfortunately, we have come to the sixth final surprise question, which, uh, if you've listened to a few episodes, is not a surprise. Um, who would you like to have on Five of My Life next? I think fittingly, you would get a lot out of talking to the great David Bridey. Oh, wow. I'd, I would love to. And why would you like me to talk to him? I think he is one of the most underrated artistic intellects in the country. I mean, I, I, I'm loath to use the word underrated because it, he kind of has a similar egg to me of following his own path. But the work that he's done, the connections, um, the support of other artists, Indigenous and Pacific Island artists, he's about to go to Antarctica to. Um, an artistic scholarship to create an album. He's got so many irons in his fire and so many stories to tell, um, both humorous and profound, that um, you'll struggle to fit him in under an hour. Well, mate, we are going to get in touch with him. And can I thank you? This has been such an enjoyable conversation. And thank you for committing to the format and respecting it. It is uh, just lovely hearing... A slightly different side of your life and your stories and more power to you mate I, I wish you lots of love and happiness and success in your future thank you Nigel and thank you for your wonderful podcast thank you for listening to the five of my life presented by me Nigel Marsh our producer is Mandy Coolan theme music is thanks to Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholas 
If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share with a friend. And if there's someone you'd like to hear take the challenge, please message us on the Five of My Life Instagram page. I love hearing from you and appreciate all your suggestions. Thank you.